everybody. Welcome back to the JedCast, Dialogues with Changemakers. I am your host, Claremont Vice Mayor Jed Liano. And with me today is my co-host, Dr. Audrey Jordan. Audrey, how are you today? I'm fine, Jed. And hey, everybody. And Jed, I'm so excited about our conversation today with Megan Siley Wells. Um, Outstanding guest. Yeah. yeah, we have with us today the former mayor of Culver City, board of directors for the National Sierra Club and policy advisor to LA County Supervisor Holly Mitchell. Megan is a staunch advocate for climate change, environmental justice, public transportation, walkable cities, housing justice, um, and worked on some really groundbreaking legislation when she was over at Culver City. I know what I want to hear and what I'm curious to talk about. Audrey, what are you looking forward to in this interview? Yeah, you know, I'm, I'm really excited that we're talking to somebody who's as passionate about the climate issues and environmental justice because we, you know, we haven't had that as much. So I'm really interested in hearing about um, her perspective on some of the complications of engaging Americans <laughs> in the fight for climate justice and for just clean air and clean water and the things we have to do to change our lives to make that so. You know, Culver City did a did a ban on oil drilling toward the end of her second term on the city council. And in that process, Culver City had to answer all of the same policy questions that we deal with nationally. If you stop drilling in one location, that's one thing to stop the drilling. But what are you doing to stop the consumption of, of fossil fuels? And, and what do you do about workers who, who work in that industry? And what do you do about environmental justice? Are you basically just sending the, the oil production and the oil drilling somewhere else? I mean, these are the conversations that surround, you know, debates about the Green New Deal and our environmental policy in Washington, D.C. And, and they, yeah. they did this in Culver City. Mm. Um, it's fascinating. So uh, really great conversation. We're going to have another outstanding member of our MPA Advisory Council here at Claremont Lincoln University. Thanks for joining us on the JEDCast. Here now with Megan Solly Wells. Really excited to have you with us. Megan, let's get right to it. So many things to discuss with you. You have such a fascinating resume in policy and government. But I want to start, and when people ask me if I know you, the first thing I would have to say is your work when you were at Culver City on the city council, you passed a resolution phasing out oil drilling after 100 years of fossil fuel production. Tell me about that legislation. What was the genesis of that? And what did it take to get that done? Thank you, Jed and and Audrey. Um, <sighs> It took failure to get us to the point of facing out oil drilling in Culver City. Back in the early 2000s, there were a series of big old blowouts that made people sick and made them leave their homes. And when the city started calling the county, because that was in the county portion, the Inglewood oil field, there were a lot of questions about, hey, what's happening? Where are the regulations? Like, who's in charge here? And the county said, hey, the state's in charge. And the state said, uh, really, the county's in charge. <laughs> and that's when Culver City knew they were in trouble. <laughs> and, and that was kind of the genesis of Culver City starting finally to pay attention to, as you said, a nearly 100-year-old oil field. It happens to be the largest contiguous 
urban oil field in the United States. It also happens to sit atop <laughs> a, a fault line capable of a 7.4 magnitude earthquake. Very reassuring. With a million people within a five mile radius of the field. So that's a lot of potential impact when things go wrong. And what we've seen year after year is that things do go wrong. You know, we're talking old infrastructure and, you know, think about an earthquake and a hundred year old pipe. Where does that leave <laughs> this densely populated urban right, population? Right. <laughs> you know, we're talking kids, schools, churches, yep. homes, businesses. And Culver City, you know, Culver City is a pretty successful city, right? We're kind of up and coming. We've got a lot of, we've got a very healthy economy. You know, we're known for a restaurant scene and that sort of thing. We're not really known for oil drilling. <laughs> and, and yet it is happening and has happened for a long time. And in starting to dig in and uh, talking to our residents, over the years, we found that the original approach we were taking, which was let's get better regulations for this field, the residents were telling us, you know what? Regulations aren't really the answer that we're looking for. This oil field is a bad neighbor. It doesn't belong here. They may have been here for a hundred years, but they've, they've done their time. And now it's time to move on. And it's really through this really exhaustive community communications and, and engagement that we came to the place where we, and, and came to the place in terms of who was in office, <laughs> where, where we had, we had votes to, to phase them out as opposed to continue under different circumstances. As the case with any, any regulatory schematic where you want to change something for your own environmental benefit, there's the argument that probably floated that there's an economic cost to this, that we're talking about people's jobs, we're talking about people's livelihoods. You know, the, the argument and the discussion that always comes up when we talk about Green New Deal is what do we do about this entire generation of workers who, by no political will or fault of their own, this is the career they've chosen and this is where they work. How did you balance that? How did you deal with that consideration in coming up with this solution? Yeah, and let me just give you a little more context here. So 10% of this field is in Culver City. So we're talking about the Culver City portion, right? The entire field, most the 90% is in unincorporated LA County. So Culver City can only control what Culver City controls. Over this huge, the, over the entire field, however, there are 80 full-time workers for this tremendous field, which is to me at least surprisingly small amount. None of them unionized, by the way. And then they do have contractors coming in that work throughout the county. But you're right. The idea of the just transition and not leaving workers behind in this transition that, listen, it's going to happen whether we plan it or not, because fossil fuel, as we know, is non-renewable, right? That's why we talk about renewable energy as opposed to non-renewable. Fossil fuels is a finite resource. And so we can either do this gracefully with our workers <laughs> or it could be Mad Max, <laughs> you know? Right, and it could right. be like, hey, 
we've gone bankrupt. Uh, it's gone. By the way, you taxpayers, you get to foot the bill. Right. <laughs> and right. Remediate Clean this it. mess up. Yep. <laughs> Clean this mess up. Um, but but we prefer to take a really like thoughtful, managed approach to something that is, you know, good for our health when we're getting off fossil fuels. And then I think we can really create even better jobs in renewables and in taking a really collaborative approach with our labor partners, as opposed to a combative approach, which is, you know, oftentimes what happens. And here's where, you know, me as a, a council member had my big old aha moment. Because I'm like, I, you know, I got into office like, okay, let's deal with this oil field because I knew my community was concerned about it. And so was I, right? So, but I had this moment when I realized that what does it mean to phase out fossil fuels in your town if you're not making a city that's less reliant on those fossil fuels? That's right. You're with? simply changing the production location, not Correct. the condition of consumption. And hello, racism, right? Like, like this is where, you know, the, the wealthier, a little bit wider community, you know, can take this, you know, highfalutin stance, right? Um, but then what about our neighbors in South LA and Kern County and, you know, all of that? So, you know, with, with this, um, and it was also because I am an environmental person, right? So it was already on my radar to uh, become less fossil fuel dependent through good transportation, through healthy bike infrastructure. You know, we've got the E-Line, what was the Expo Metro Line, um, and through housing, right? We've got a ton of jobs. We've got to be building the housing where the jobs are. So that people aren't doing, you know, <laughs> four hour commutes every day and that, you know, spewing fossil fuels in the air. And the other really key piece, and I think what gives us a little more credibility, especially on the jobs front, because we're actually creating jobs here, is that we joined the Clean Power Alliance. And that means that we are one of 33 cities plus the County of Los Angeles and the County of Ventura who have all gotten together to procure energy, and in our case, 100% renewable energy. So our city, as of May 2019, already runs on 100% renewable. Outstanding. We have already eliminated a ton of that dependency. And I used to be the board member on the Clean Power Alliance. We are investing big bucks <laughs> in clean energy and energy storage programs because we need it, you know, to serve our customers. And we also have a really robust jobs program, training program. I mean, in other words, like just transition is something that we like to bandy about as a term. But this is actually happening today. It's not like some far off like future. <laughs> it's thing. not a white paper from for a hundred years from now, right? Yeah, it's boots on the ground. Megan, the perfect thing is in your answer to that last question, you basically laid my next question out, which was, you know, one of the big things that you're working on is clean transportation infrastructure. And you've put a lot of emphasis on buses and bikes. I'm going to ask you an abstract question, and I'm curious just what your opinion on it. I was in Sacramento before the pandemic, and someone said to me, there's a war, in, there's a war on cars right now. 
Sacramento is trying to wage a war on cars. And I thought in my head, it wasn't really the, the location for, for a back and forth. I kind of wanted to come back with, well, cars are kind of waging a war on the planet. So, I mean, like who, who's fighting the war? You've been a big advocate for bikes and for buses. You are on the coastal west side of Los Angeles, arguably car culture of America, capital of America's car culture. First, how do you go about espousing a political philosophy that is so contrary to seemingly the cultural identity of Southern California? I, I, know, that's, I know that's very broad, but you know, from a messaging standpoint, how do you go about doing that? Yeah. <laughs> very carefully. <laughs> I think the I think the argument is that like if you love bikes and you love buses and you love trains you go live in New York or you go live in some other place that that is predicated on a robust public transportation infrastructure and and we were so I I grew up here in southern California we're we're just a car culture you know just curious how you go about that messaging. It's interesting I could talk for like 10 hours on this <laughs> but <laughs> Uh, you know, Harry Culver, the founder of Culver City, chose this location because it was like midway between downtown LA and Venice, right? Venice Beach, which back in the 19 teens uh, was like this wealthy resort place, right? And we had like the red car. There were a lot of trolley lines that went to the beach and, to, and that passed through Culver City. And so he actually chose Culver, the location, which was like Beanfields. And uh, he thought, like, he said, all roads lead to Culver City. But interestingly enough, you know, back in, it was like 1912, 1913, round about there. It wasn't like car roads, right? <laughs> it was, <laughs> there were some, but it was really these, these train lines that were coming here. Fast forward to, you know, the devastating effects of creating the... <laughs> highway system. <laughs> All roads do lead to Culver City because we happen to be at the crossroads of the 405 and the 10 freeways. Hello, worst traffic, you know, Ugh. at least in the United States, right? And Culver City is a cut through. We've actually done studies where you have at least 75% of the traffic in Culver City neither originates nor ends in Culver City. And so when I get into these very hot, hot debates, <laughs> when you're going up against the, you know, the car culture, the status quo, what people think is, hey, you know, widen the roads, we'll have less traffic. We tried that, right? <laughs> it doesn't work. <laughs> It's, you know, um, induced demand and all, you know, all, all that policy stuff. Yeah. <laughs> and so the more, the more car friendly you make things, the more cars you get. And so what I get to do is try to teach people about why you get less traffic when you make it harder to drive, as long as you're creating alternatives, right? Because what we need is to get around. What we need is mobility. We don't necessarily need to do it in an SUV, one person, one car. We just need that convenience, that access, that ease, and something that is not expensive. And by the way, hey, maybe we can also make it healthy. <laughs> maybe we could make it non-polluting. 
maybe we can also really support our local businesses because, you know, when you're shut in that little metal box, you're not necessarily stopping places, right? right. But when you're on a bike or you're walking and your, your city is built that way, you're getting a lot more of those you know, drop by the cafe. We just had, we're so lucky. We just had a beautiful little bookshop open right across the street from city hall, you know, going to the theater. Like we are a walkable and increasingly walkable city and trying to build that city where we're really catering, Hey, to people who live here, to people who work here, yeah. And I and when I start like changing the narrative with folks and talking about like, you know, when you're <laughs> when when you see me on my bike and when you hear me with my anti-car, <laughs> what I'm talking about is is like actually making it easier and more pleasant for us because we've all got that cut through traffic. And you're right, Jed, like these cars are deadly. It's not just deadly for the planet. But and we've seen even recently during COVID, even with less cars on the road, they're actually going faster. Mm-hmm. The, the, the carnage on our streets is unthinkable. Car crashes, I believe, are the number one cause of death among kids yep. in California. Right. I mean, please, this is, I mean, th- it's incredibly scandalous what we just kind of take for granted as the cost for what, what we think is convenience? No. And when you talked about, you know, I've lived in other places in the world. I've traveled, I was lucky enough to be able to travel a lot in my twenties and it doesn't have to be this way. Like think of like the best places you want to go visit. Do you go there because you can drive places or do you go there because you can walk places? Absolutely. You know? Walkability. There's no reason we can do that. And we've got to, if we right. want to survive. One of my uh, closest friends here in my town always says, you know, people complain about parking and he says, we don't have a parking problem. We have a walking problem yeah. is that we we've congested our roads with cars so that we value the space for cars more than the value for people. I'm going to throw it to my co-host, Dr. Audrey Jordan. Audrey, what you got? Hey, Megan, I'm enjoying this conversation so far. You know, as you were talking, I really was thinking about this problem of the political and public will to recognize climate change as the impending disaster that awaits us. And I'm just curious to talk with you. Like you, I'm really happy that we have a change at the federal level in the whole outlook about the need to go green and how we can combine that with economics and jobs and all that. But I'm talking about living where I live and listening to your story. As a public leader, what can you do? What have you done to foment more public will and political will to get folks to do the things we must do to deal with climate change? <sighs> yeah, <laughs> it's a hard road, but, but it's a road we need to take. And honestly, you know, one of the beauties of being an elected leader in a smaller or mid-sized city, Culver City is uh, 40,000, and outside of COVID, you know, when you're campaigning, you can actually go, you go door to door and you meet people and you have these one-on-one conversations. 
And it's fascinating. I mean, Culver City politically is overwhelmingly Democratic. In fact, in 2020, <laughs> the results of our votes were even more progressive than Santa Monica <laughs> in terms of statewide bills. So just saying, love yeah. Santa Monica, but. <laughs> so we've got a lot of politically progressive folks. But not every person is animated by the same concerns or the same level of concern about certain things. When I get to talk to people, I, you know, I try to find where their values are. And usually, for me at least, it all leads to climate in some way. <laughs> um, and and we're just, when we're talking about like the immediacy of need to act on climate, it can be hard to grasp because it is, it's scary and it's like big science and it's oftentimes thinking of like long-term effects, even though we're seeing a lot of these effects today, right? But in speaking with people, I often talk about the immediate harms that are happening in our community, like going back to the oil field you know, this oil field isn't just the cause of greenhouse gases as it's being extracted and certainly when it's being processed and then when it's being burned, you know, that's all bad for the climate, but it also has, you know, cancer causing, you know, benzene, toluene and all these things where we're seeing, you know, abnormal amounts like cancer clusters and miscarriages in certain neighborhoods and asthma and those immediate health impacts that are sometimes easier to wrap your mind around, even though they're still scary, <laughs> than, than something that's like, maybe people are thinking is far away in the future. And, but boy, when you read those studies and they're like, you've got about mm, nine more years <laughs> right. to turn the ship around. <laughs> no, but I love what you just said about making it immediate, making it personal, talking to folks about what we can see right now that's happening. And it reminds me that something else you said earlier, where the effects of these kinds of things are not happening in an equally distributed way. There are neighborhoods of color and neighborhoods of low income, the marginalized communities that are feeling the effects of this more. And so it sets up this false battle, I think I see, and I want, want to ask you to speak to it, of the environmental justice movement and those marginalized communities and advocates fighting for climate change for those reasons and fighting for economic redistribution and just immediate policy to deal with the harm. And then you have the Sierra Clubs and the client vigilantes out there who are predominantly white and, and higher income, and they're fighting that battle for climate change uh, disruption, but the two are not working together and at times are in opposition to each other. I would think that there's a way to thread that needle and help people see, but I'm curious about what you as a public leader and what you see happening to, to do some of that coalition building. You're so right. I mean, that's just it. Like that, that is exactly, that is exactly the, the challenge of our time, in my opinion, what you just described. And it's a wake up call. I mean, when the murder of George Floyd and our racial reckoning that we've been having since, you know, me as a white woman, 
like I've been fighting for a lot of equity initiatives. When I was mayor, I joined my brother's keeper community challenge from President Obama. And I thought I was pretty, you know, woke, but <laughs> I've done a lot of learning since then. And the more that I get into this work, like the more I understand about like the history of the injustices and why certain neighborhoods are more impacted than others. I mean, it's honestly, it's fracking government's fault. <laughs> it is fracking government's fault yep. because yep. we drew the red line. I mean, that came directly from the federal government and was completely um, aided and abetted and policed by municipal governments. Yeah. And so, you know, we drew that system into place and it's yeah. up to us local governments to undraw that and to undo, you know, undo the red line and to, and to really look at racial justice as part of the same fight as environmental justice, as part of the same fight as, you know, clean air, as good schools, as good jobs you know, walkable, like all of those things go together. And so we've got a lot to do. I mean, I'm really glad that we started some of this work a couple of years back in Culver City. We joined the Government Alliance on Race and Equity, which, you know, this nonprofit works specifically with local governments to recognize the institutional racism uh, and to undo it. And to do that, you know, with our employees because we are delivering that service. And so it's both like that high level, like zoning, planning, <laughs> et cetera. But it's also in the everyday exchanges because we're the form of government that's closest to the people, right? And so we are engaging, whether it's a parks attendant or, you know, or a police officer for that matter, right? Local government has to be at the forefront of racial justice. And it's a hard conversation. There are some cringy moments during these council meetings. <laughs> <laughs> Speaking of cringy, tune in Tuesday night, 7 p.m. No, I'm joking. Uh, you know, Megan, you know I'm not going to talk to you without talking about housing. I mean, you brought it up. I, I was going to go there next, and you just keep laying out the carpet for me, girl. So let's get right to it. You know, Audrey adequately highlighted, and you know, we couldn't do an interview without you, without getting, you know, some of your heavy policy work out of the way. But the fact is, you know, a lot of your work centers on climate issues. And we are now seeing the intersection of climate and housing policy. We're hearing that climate policy, good housing policy is good climate policy. They, they, they have to think of one another concurrently. You know, we're both reps at SCAG, or we both were together. That's how I met you. And we both were there when we were making the RENA allocations and coming up with the methodology. And <laughs> there's definitely, there's definitely two schools of thought. There's one school of thought that the housing needs to be built where the jobs and the infrastructure are. And then there's another counterpoint of, well, if you go build the infrastructure over there, then the housing can be cheap over there too. And we can put the housing in the outskirts of, of the current population centers. I just would love to hear your thoughts on that. Obviously, housing production, density, development. You just said government's hard. That's the essence of the difficulty in, in local government. But I would love to hear your thoughts on, first of all, just housing policy intersecting, becoming a part of the climate conversation. And two, how we're going to have to accomplish our climate goals 
through smart housing policy? I've evolved on this. I didn't start as a pro-housing person. I was always like pro-environment, et cetera. And I was not connecting the dots between housing policy and climate policy. And so I can understand that, you know, not everybody has had the same journey, but Audrey, your previous question about getting that political will and having those conversations about like climate change and how we get there, you know, almost like how you change that culture. Mm -hmm. It's what I try to do in these hard conversations is go straight to the top and the big vision. And where is it we want to be, right? So let's skip the, you know, (laughs) the, the crazy like fear about skyscrapers in the middle of a residential neighborhood and what all the, you know, kind of NIMBY propaganda is gonna show you, right? But let's get to that big vision. And that big vision is, you know, I want Culver City and, and, and all of our cities here in Southern California to be places where you can spend your entire life cycle and have the housing that you need, the need for, you know, babies (laughs) and and their needs, school children and their needs, university students and young workers and their needs, you know, people who are my age, I just turned 48. (laughs) Um, (laughs) And as we age, we should be able to all age with grace and dignity in the place that we want to call home. That's not the case today. That is not the case in Culver City. Right. Culver City used to be working class. Mm. And it, it wasn't discovered as being on the West Side back then. <laughs> you know? Uh, and for, for, for the audience at home, there was some, some air quotation marks when you said West Side, just to, just to yeah. point that out for the listeners. Um, it, yeah, it used to be not not a design. It was like auto body shops and really was the place where you just drove through. <laughs> but now, now it's become insanely expensive. There are $3 million houses in my town and I just can't even come close to like being able to fathom that. So where does that leave you know, folks on a fixed income. Where does that leave young families? Our school district is an excellent school district, Culver City Unified. People move here for the schools. We can't keep teachers because teachers cannot live within five hours of Culver City. This is a crisis. And by the way, speaking of crises, you know, the moral crisis of houselessness is, you know, every day, more and more exposed to our eyes. Uh, But those problems, again, are of our creation because of anti-housing policies. And again, I I did not see that going into council. I did not see that before I started thinking about policy. But once I started hearing the stories and talking to people, learning more about planning just all together, it's like you can't unsee what you've seen (laughs) I I couldn't ignore the problem and the solutions once they became apparent uh, to me, which is what made me a fighter in at the Southern California Association of Governments for 
what was dubbed by the LA Times to be the coastal plan, <laughs> the, the regional housing needs assessment plan that, that prioritized housing where the jobs are, like Culver City in Culver City. And so right. we're, we're lucky right now to have some good political will around uh, pro-housing policies. We're also updating our general plan. So this is a good time for big vision, community conversations, and hopefully some more understanding around you know, why housing matters and why single family housing is plain racist. <laughs> There's no other way to put it. You know, what you said right now comes brings back to me a number of like really good points that have been made some by some of the other members of our advisory council. You know, like we were just on with Rex Richardson, who said that, you know, when people get left behind by by laws and by schemes in government, that wasn't an accident. That means that the system's working. That means that it was designed that way and what exactly was intended actually was accomplished. Not long ago, we asked Scott Weiner on, on the podcast, you know, there's a lot of people who like their neighborhoods and their single family neighborhoods. And they say, well, I'm not racist. And, and his response was, you know, when it, it's not about you personally, it's that what you support excludes people of color. It has the policy and quantitative result that people of color get excluded from your city. When that's all you allow, that's who does not get allowed into your into your town. And it's not that you are a racist personally, it's that things you support have racist consequences. And maybe, you know, that's one way to, to kind of change the conversation because nobody likes to be called a racist, but, really? <laughs> but it's good to like, <laughs> let people know that, you know, this is the consequence of supporting this policy. Before I let you go, we could do this all day. I wish that this podcast weren't just defined by an episode, but one of the things you talk a lot about is leading like an organizer. What does that mean? Well, I mean, I was a community organizer before I was elected to office. And so I was that person who was used to being on the, on the outside of the dais, speaking to the people in power and, and asking them to, you know, listen to my community. And I, I really always throughout my leadership, I always remembered what it was like to be on that side of the dais, right? What, was, what it was like to be on that side of the podium. And, you know, looking, <laughs> I'm telling you, there are people who are in power who have a completely transactional vision of the job. And when you're an organizer, you know, what you're thinking about is how can I make things better for my community? And frankly, how can I break down some of those silos of power and bring more people to the table rather than, you know, some sort of like closed loop of folks that are just kind of patting themselves on the back and, you know, in it, in that closed circle. And so, you know, leading like an organizer is, I'm telling you, just like looking people in the eye when they're talking to you, whether you agree with them or not. And it's also what's called the inside-outside strategy. In other words, talk to folks at universities, talk to community organizers. They are often more educated than the elected official because they are focused on specific issues and they've done a tremendous amount of work and listening 
around those issues. You know, my biggest, hardest fights in council, none of them would have happened without the power of community organizing. None of them. We passed renter protections and, and, and rent stabilization in 2020. We started in 2019. We were the only West Side city not to have any type of renter protections. Even Beverly Hills had stronger renter, rental protections than we did in Culver City. And that was a legacy, you know, it was in Culver City, it was very much the old boys club for, for a very yeah, long time. Like so many cities, right? Yeah. I'm only the fifth woman to be elected to the Culver City Council. Wow. And, and the first to be mayor twice in my two terms. The, the wonderful person who succeeded me, Yasmin Imani McMorrin, is the first African-American woman elected to the city council. We're over a hundred years old. And my former colleague, Daniel Lee, was the first black man to be elected to council. And so we've got a lot of work to do, but it's through that community organizing and that spirit of bringing a chair to the table, <laughs> you know, bringing, making a bigger table as opposed to um, leaving folks out. Like that's, that's what leading as an organizer is to me. Well, Megan, I want to thank you for coming on with us today. It has been a real joy having you a part of the Claremont Lincoln team in, in the things that we got to do together. And so I'm just really glad you get to be a part of this. And more importantly, I'm just really glad that that the listeners and the university community get to hear your story and hear about your passion and things you do. And before I let you go, tell people what you're working on and where can they find you? Well, I um, just started working as a consultant for Supervisor Holly Mitchell, who is, I think, one of the best elected representatives ever. <laughs> I, don't know, I don't think that's an exaggeration. She's just, she's just a model and, and a rock star. <laughs> Um, so I'm just incredibly pleased to be working on her team. I'm I'm actually managing her commission process, and I am working at policy at the intersection of mobility, housing, and environmental justice. So my wheelhouse. <laughs> Very happy to be there for that. And then I just got elected to the National um, Sierra Club board. So very happy to uh, to be part of that work as well. And the best way to find me is on Twitter <laughs> at M underscore Sally, S-A-H-L-I underscore Wells, W-E-L-L-S. Awesome. Megan Sally yeah. Wells, uh, former mayor Culver City, board of directors, Sierra Club, and policy advisor to supervisor Holly Mitchell. Megan, always a pleasure to have you with us. Thanks for coming on. Thank you so much. Thank you. Okay, everybody, what an outstanding interview. Thanks for being with us. Audrey really loved that talk with Megan Solly Wells. So many great topics. I mean, we could have been there for four hours if we wanted. Absolutely. I have some highlights that, that I really want to take away from this, but would love to hear what you thought was the highlight of this interview. Yeah, I mean, she comes across as just, you know, so authentic and personally engaged in, you know, what clearly is, long fights around things like climate justice and environmental justice. I was so taken by her honesty about, you know, I didn't even get the need to be 
emphasizing housing policy. Right. And then how she learned to discover through her own racial reckoning that, you know, housing policy is the origin of so much of what we see now in terms of structural racism and the implications that has for everything. And the other thing that really got me was, you know, as somebody who's a community organizer background is just how she described um, how, how you have to be or, or how she finds having been a community organizer a real asset to her public leadership. I couldn't agree more. Yeah, and you know, when I listen to elected officials talk about a policy problem that they're working on, if you listen to every elected official talk, all they do is hit home runs. And the thing is, the very first thing we asked her was, what was the genesis of the, the oil drilling ordinance? And she said to me, you know, it, it took failure for us to get to a place to have the political will to get this done. You know, we, we messed up in a lot of things. And that kind of straightforward sincerity is really lacking in public service. So just really appreciated hearing that. Hope you all thought this interview was fascinating. A lot to chew on in terms of policy. Glad you got to hear one of the best in Southern California, my friend, the former mayor of Culver City, board of directors, Sierra Club, and policy advisor to uh, supervisor Holly Mitchell, Megan Sally Wells. Thanks again for being with us, everybody. This is the Jedcast. See you next time. <laughs>